Go ahead and uh, look to the center aisle and the side aisles as our ushers are going to be bringing by note sheets and pencils for you. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand and uh, they'll bring one to you. We're going to need our Bibles today as we need them every day. When it says, great is thy faithfulness, and it says, morning by morning, new mercies I seek. I really believe what the psalmist is talking about there is, is seeking the Lord in His Word. Morning by morning, opening up the Scripture and seeing the promises of God, remembering the declarations that God has made and revealed to His people over time. And so we are blessed to have the Word so readily available to us as a people. We are grateful to be able to study it together without a threat or fear of persecution. And so uh, as God's church, we're going to let Him speak to us today through the Word, and we're going to be diligent in applying what we learn in the Word to our lives. We are a people of grace, a people of faith, But the way we know how to be those things is because God has revealed His truth and His desire for us in His Word. So this will always be foundational to us. Uh, The Word is not something that's going to pass away when the heavens and the earth pass away. The Word is eternal. So we would do well to invest our hearts and minds into this eternal world, which will endure to the ends of the ages. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to uh, Galatians chapter 1, where we're going to be today studying verses 11 <clears throat> and 12. For a long time, I've, uh, I've wanted to have a dog. I love dogs. I grew up with dogs. And uh, I much prefer dogs to other kinds of pets. Though, uh, you know, other pets are cool too. Uh, if you like cats, uh, knock yourselves out. But uh, dogs for me, right? I love dogs. But when Missy and I started having lots of kids, in the beginning of our marriage there, it became clear that a house full of diaper babies was enough work. We didn't want to add a dog to that mix. And so for a lot of years, I just sort of repressed my desire for a pet, and I didn't let, it, uh, didn't let it get me down. But eventually, as my boys grew and they began to handle more responsibilities around the house, my lovely and generous wife conceded that it was time to get a dog. And, uh, and so her name is Nellie. We got a dog. Here's a picture of her as a little pup. And she's not so little anymore. She's about 95 pounds. She's a big girl. And she's generally a very good girl. She's a, a really good-natured dog. And uh, she doesn't get into a whole lot of trouble, though she is a dog. So from time to time, she's going to chew something up or dig something up or do something like that. Uh, Nellie is not opposed to following instructions. But from her perspective, where those instructions come from makes all the difference in the world. If one of my five sons asks Nellie to do something that she doesn't want to do, she pretends like she has no idea what they're talking about. She just just looks cute and continues to do what she's doing and completely ignores them. But if Missy tries to tell Nellie to go outside or if she implores Nellie to stop wandering around the kitchen waiting for someone to drop food, then Nellie just usually looks up with those big old brown eyes and plays dumb. But it's a very different story if the instructions are coming from me. Now, I'm not trying to brag here, but I am kind of the alpha male in the house, and I'm the one who spent most of the time training Nellie and really teaching her the rules of the household. I'm the one who's strong enough to leash her up and take her on walks, which is that's her favorite thing in the world. I'm the only one who could pick her up and put her in the bath, because she hates taking baths. I'm the one who's going to discipline Nellie if she gets into trouble. And for those reasons, when I say, Nellie, get in your crate, her ears go down, and she goes into her crate. She listens. She, she obeys. Even if my kids have been trying to get her into the crate for 15 minutes, I say it once and she goes. Dogs tend to know who's in charge. And if the person in charge isn't the one who's calling the shots, they usually see obedience as optional. 
People can be that way too. This is not just a dog thing. The prime content of the Galatian letter that we're studying is the true gospel over and against any variation or spin-off version of the gospel that man tries to invent. And Paul has been working diligently in the first chapter of his letter to give the Christians in the region of Galatia reason to believe that the gospel he is preaching to them, the gospel that he defends and stands for, is the only gospel that they can trust. He adds to that argument this morning in verses 11 through 12, as he addresses the very important question of the origin of the one true gospel. Where did the gospel that Paul defends come from? Is it from Paul? Is it from the other apostles? Or is it from God himself? And so we have the faithful testimony of God before us. We're going to look at Galatians chapter 1, reading verses 11 and 12. The apostle Paul writes, For I would have you know, brothers that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. The first few words highlight the importance of what Paul is about to say. He says, For I would have you know, brothers... That little introduction to this concept makes it clear to us that these things he's about to share to us are things that are valuable to the church. They are things that we must grasp, things that we must comprehend, and things that we must value. Paul's not going to just assume that they already believe these things. The Galatians needed them, and so, church, do we need to know these things about the origin of the true gospel. They needed to know, verse 11, that the gospel that was preached by Paul is not man's gospel. And this morning I'm going to point out to you two important ways that that phrase rings true to us. First of all, it is not man's gospel in the sense that the true gospel is not man's invention. Man did not create this gospel message that we sing about today, that we have been transformed by. It was not concocted by the minds of mortals. Paul surely didn't invent it. The twelve disciples didn't come up with it in the upper room after they had to figure out what to do when Jesus had been crucified. They didn't borrow it from the Gentiles or import it from some other spiritual religion. If the gospel was man's invention, if it was concocted by the thoughts and minds of mortal men, created sinners like you and like me, then how would it be any different than the thousands of other vain attempts that man has made to overcome the problems of his sin? How would it be any different from the hundred other schemes that man has tried to devise that might somehow get him close to God again? There are plenty of examples of man-made religions in our world, aren't there? And they all exist for one of a handful of reasons. One of the prime reasons that man likes to invent religion, and it is not a noble reason, is because they know that through the powerful effects of faith on a person's life, that the person in charge of the religion can have control over those who have faith. I would say that this is the least noble reason why man invents religions, because they want to control the thoughts and the actions of their fellow men. Cults exist for this very purpose. A false god or gods are invented that seem to have ominous superhuman power. And that 
God that has been concocted by the mind of man seems to threaten the freedoms of man, may have some dominion over blessings that could be man's. And then a series of rules are made up to make people think that those, if those rules are followed, that they will be blessed for their obedience. They can appease that scary God and prevent him from doing anything to harm them. The leaders of the religion are free to tweak the rules to suit their needs, and they end up holding tremendous influence over the people who join their man-made religions. That's one of the reasons why man invents religious organizations. A second reason why men invent religious organizations, and this is slightly more noble, but it's still not acceptable, is for the purpose of ethics. More on the useful side, people sometimes invent religious constructs because sin has devastating effects on the world. Human beings and their natural behaviors tend to cripple society. Society doesn't tend to work well if everyone is lying to one another, if no one respects each other's property, if everyone is solving their own problems through vigilante justice, societies tend to crumble. So man, from time to time, has invented a variety of religions that take a shot at describing the right way to live. Again, rewards are often promised for those who are doing good, punishments for those who are doing bad. So people might invent religion for control purposes, they might create religion for ethical purposes to make society a little bit more livable, and others create religion to ease the conscious. We have learned from Romans chapter 1 that all men, all created men, know that there is a God in, the heart of, in their heart of hearts, that we uh, are without excuse as we look around at the beauty of creation, the complexity of its design, that there's something deep in the heart of man that says, you're not the greatest thing there is. There is something bigger and better than you. We all know vaguely that there is a right and that there is a wrong. And when we do something that is wrong, often we will feel the tingle of guilt that comes from knowing that we have just done something that is against God. Even those who are not religious at all somehow know that many of the things they're doing are against God and that they should feel guilt for it. And so I believe that much of the creation of man-made religion comes from trying to stem the tide of the guilt that man feels because of the reality of their rebelliousness to God. <clears throat> However, creating a bunch of rules and regulations that man can follow to somehow make God happy with him again is a dead-end road. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our unrighteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Now, though this is not a flattering picture of Humanity, it is accurate. All of the good that we could ever try to do to please God would not undo the rebellious things we have done against Him. It would not make null and void all the rebellious acts that we have done to dishonor God and to, to show Him disrespect. <clears throat> the true gospel is priceless and beautiful and perfect in part because it originated not in the futile mind of man, but in the infinitely wise mind of God. Peter testifies in the same way that Paul does. Peter, who is one of the twelve disciples who walked with Jesus and ministered alongside him, he says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, it says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of, 
and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. They didn't devise myths to impress people. Instead, they were eyewitnesses to the things God had revealed. Skip down to verse 20 there. It says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ was not a cleverly devised myth. It was not some construct of the human mind. No doubt some skeptics thought that Christianity was nothing more than a fantastic story thought up by some guys who wanted attention for a season. But Peter argues that he and the other apostles are only bearing testimony to the true things they have seen with their own eyes and heard with their own ears. In verses 17 through 19, which I didn't read in full for the sake of time, Peter refers to the transfiguration on the mount. He points back to the fact that he and James and John were brought up to the mountain where Jesus revealed to them his true divine nature. He showed to them that he was not only truly a man, but that he was also truly God in the flesh. And they saw him with glory, shining as bright as the sun. And they heard the voice of the Father calling down from heaven, Behold my Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. They had no choice but to testify of this this amazing event that they had seen. It was truly a revelation from God. This is not something they were devising themselves, rather. It was what God had revealed to the nation of Israel and to the Gentiles of the world through these three men. He then goes on to explain in 2 Peter 1, 20-21, that true prophecy, the eternal truth that God chooses to reveal to us, is never the invention of man or the byproduct of man's interpretations. Friends, the contents of this book that you have in your lap there are very special. This is not just a collection of very wise things that people have come up with over the years. Not that those collections of wisdom don't have value, but when we look at the Word of God, we see it as God's message to His people. It's the very words, the very truths that we need to know God. Truths that would be absolutely foreign to the mind of man if we were trying to discern them ourselves. Had God not intervened into our lives and revealed these things to us, we would not know God the way that we do today. Do we grasp the magnitude of that gift? Do we understand how important it is that God has loved us enough to reach down into our broken material existence and show us who He is. His words are contained in this book. Not our ideas about what God might say. These words are the things that God has said and the things that He does say to us today, to our very hearts, so that we might have a right relationship with Him. What a wonderful truth that God inserts Himself into existence by revealing to us who He is and what He has done. We should be in awe and wonder at the gift of God's Word and the power of His Gospel that does not start in man. We get our priorities so out of whack, friends. I I remember hearing about a a friend of mine 
growing up who uh, got to go to Hawaii on vacation. And uh, she was sitting there with her mother, and they were in a restaurant eating together. And lo and behold, who's eating dinner next to them but Kevin Costner? And this is like pre-Waterworld Kevin Costner. We're talking about like Field of Dreams Kevin Costner. We're talking about Bodyguard Kevin Costner, right? Back when he had A-list value, he was the man back then. And he's sitting there eating his dinner, and my friend's mom is just trembling. She is smitten. And he had been there eating, and so shortly into their meal, he gets up and he walks away, and he look, she looks at her daughter, and she says, I'm going to do it. And the daughter says, what are you going to do? And she sinks down in her chair. Don't embarrass me. Don't embarrass me. She says, I'm going to do it. She gets up and she walks over to the chair and she pulls his straw out of his cup and she runs back and she hides it in her purse. And she took that straw home and I bet you she still has that straw today. Not that she even spoke to Kevin Costner, but that straw has some of his germs on it, I guess. I don't know, but it meant something to her. She felt like she had a connection with something bigger than life, bigger than herself. And human beings do ridiculous things like this all the time, don't they? Yeah. You know, many of us have a ball at home that somebody scribbled something on and it's their name. And we just keep that one in a glass box. We, we got to revere that one, right? Because somebody big, somebody important touched that thing. And now I, I can touch that ball too and somehow we're linked. <laughs> These are the words that come out of the mouth of God to you. They come out of the mouth of God to you. They come through his servants. They come from love. They come bearing truth. They come to divide so that you will no longer be deceived and in the dark. Friends, this book is so critical to our existence, and yet we treat it like a small thing so often. We need to realize that the gospel is not something that man made up. It is God's book. And we should treat it with reverence and respect. We should desire to scour its pages for wisdom. We should want to learn and grow by what it has to give to us. And yet many people never spent the time to consider how these scriptures have come to be. Paul tells us that, that this, his gospel message, it, it did not come from man. Peter tells us that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. So how did the contents of this book come to be? Have we thought about that? Have we meditated on that, that, that question? God has things to say to us. He's not absent or oblivious to his creation. God chooses to use people who trust in him to be messengers of what he desires to reveal to those he loves. The things that God reveals to those messengers, prophets, apostles, witnesses, they're not just ideas. They are literal words Specific propositional statements that communicate God's desire and will to us. And that's why 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, the second half says, Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit has worked in divine ways to use man as an instrument to deliver his truth to us. And what Peter is describing here is something that theologians call, and it's a, it's a term we should learn and know, the plenary verbal understanding of the inspiration of Scripture. You might have never uttered that phrase in your life. Plenary verbal understanding of Scripture. There's a lot of different ways that people view this book, friends. And if we want to have a reverent and accurate view of what God has given to us, then we should think about how we view the book. According to the plenary verbal understanding of inspiration, 
God extends his sovereign control over the writing of Scripture down to the very choice of words, not merely to the overarching themes or concepts, that is, the whole of Scripture and all of its parts down to the very words of the original were inspired. Okay, let me describe what that means. That means that when John is, is brought up into the throne room of God and he is given this amazing vision of things to come and we see 24 elders seated around the throne of God and we see the sea of glass and we see them bowing down and putting their crowns before God who sits upon the throne. And when the scroll comes in and the scroll reveals truth that we need to know and no one is worthy to open it and they say, who's going to open the scroll? And people are weeping because... There's no one to open the scroll. And then the Lamb comes in and the Lamb says that he will open the scroll. The Lamb is Jesus Christ. When John sees these things and he writes them down, God doesn't just say, here's a snapshot. Now give us your best interpretation of what that is. John doesn't just uh, start scribbling down his thoughts and hope for the best. The Holy Spirit is literally working in this man, this messenger, so that God can use his voice to be God's voice for a time. And as John writes those words down, they are, the, they are the exact words that God desires for us to have. The original manuscripts of Scripture contain the exact words that God desires for His people. He doesn't say, here's an idea, tell it to the people how you like them to have it. He says, this is what you need to share to the individuals who are going to receive it. And so every word, every word form, Every word placement found in the Bible's original manuscripts was divinely and intentionally written by God's servants as God's words. How does this impact our view of the translations? Okay, we don't have the original manuscripts that God originally spoke to the people. We have translations of it. But it means that our translations need to come from the earliest texts that we have available to us. We need to be reverent in the way that we translate the Bible. We've got to be careful to try to keep it as accurate as we possibly can to the things that God wanted us to have. And there are Bible translations out there that are more like a paraphrase than a word-to-word -word translation. And those paraphrases have some value to them. But friends, we've got to be very careful that we don't let these paraphrases, which often change little bits of meaning, little word constructs that change the ideas just slightly to reflect the views of the translator. And in doing so, we might be missing out on the views of the speaker, of the one who spoke those words through his prophets and his, his teachers. So we want our translations to be word for word as accurate as they possibly can be. We need to be humble in knowing that the English language is not the language they were originally written in. So there will be a little bit of interpretative, uh, interpretive difficulty for us. But we have every reason to believe that these words are authoritative and from the Lord God, that they are trustworthy. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 through 18 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This idea of the the scripture being breathed out by God shows us that inspiration is more than just giving someone impressions that inspire them to just do things that are godly or that are, might be pleasing to God some way, shape, or form. Rather, that the, the spirit is breathing out God's words through the men who picked up the pens and wrote the scriptures down on paper. 
God chooses to allow the style and the experience of the person carrying his message to come through in the way that he writes. And so David's psalms are not going to feel exactly the same as the letter to the Romans that Paul writes. One of them is is designed to help us experience the beauty of the Lord God and express in, in wonderful rhythmic ways how we trust him and how he is important to us and central to our lives. The other is meant to show through analytical means and very accurate descriptions what we are to believe about the gospel and how God accomplishes victory over our sin so that the styles of the writer will come through. But that doesn't mean that they swayed God's mind or interfered with the communication he wanted to give to his people. The Holy Spirit is is wise and powerful enough to use the flavor of a, a certain individual's writing style, but to use it accurately in the way that he desires to communicate his truth to people. The process is governed from beginning to end by the Holy Spirit, and God assures that the end result will be effective to produce discipleship among faithful believers who receive it humbly. God's word never returns void. Amen? And so we can therefore see the word of God as trustworthy. He provides it for us. It's not the word of men that we have to scrutinize and wonder what their intentions were. It is the word of God. It doesn't need amendment. We don't have to feel like we've got to constantly put the word to the test. Though there's nothing wrong with being a Berean and trying to understand what the word means. But it is sufficient. It is without error. It does not go beyond what God desires for us to know. There are things that God does not choose to reveal to us right now. And we don't need supplementary texts to pique all of our curiosities and fill in all the gaps that God has chosen not to fill in. The word is enough for us. It is trustworthy. We also need to realize that if these words are spoken through the prophets and the apostles through them by God then these words are authoritative. They carry weight in our lives. If what it says is what God says, then we should see it as binding over us. God's word to us are not suggestions or advice. They are truth. To treat them as less than truth is to dishonor God. We are to honor the whole counsel of God's scripture. We cannot afford to just look at the parts that we identify with best and then neglect the rest. When Timothy is, or when Paul is writing to Timothy and says that all scriptures God breathed and useful for you, what scripture is he talking about there? Now, by that time, there might have been a couple of gospel accounts that were floating around in the churches. There might have been a few letters that were seen as scripture, but he's primarily talking about the Old Testament scripture as well. So we can't just say that we are New Testament Christians and so we're going to ignore the Old Testament scripture. We've got to let that truth impact our lives as well. Not that we are under the law of the Old Testament, but that that law is still revealing to us the beautiful heart of our God and instructing us on how we can be pleasing to Him. It is authoritative over us in that it gets to direct our steps and guide our paths. The gospel is not man's gospel because man didn't make it. But there is a second sense in which we can rightly understand the claim of verse 11. I believe it also reveals to us that it is not man's gospel to control or to possess. To control or to possess. Let me explain what I mean by that. The gospel is a gift from God to man. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? 
And those who receive this gift will benefit from it by knowing eternal life with our Maker. But in the giving of the gospel to man, God does not forfeit his own possession over it. He does not turn it over to God and say, have fun, do what you want with this. He is giving it to us in the sense that it is a blessing to us. It is effectual to those who have faith in Jesus Christ. But it does not make it ours to govern the way we desire. Think of it in these terms. God has given you an incredible gift when you got saved, didn't he? He gave you the gift of the Holy Spirit, didn't he? The Holy Spirit dwells inside of all who trust in Jesus Christ and call upon his name. But in giving you the gift of the Holy Spirit, and go back through your scripture and and study it this week, he calls the Holy Spirit a gift again and again. In gifting you the Holy Spirit, do you now have governance over the Holy Spirit? Are you now the king of the Holy Spirit? No, friend. The Holy Spirit is one of the three persons of the one true God. So you don't own the Spirit in the way that many people think of ownership. You do not have dominion over that spirit that is within you. That spirit that dwells with you is a, sir, is a helper to you, but he's not your slave, okay? You do not get to control the spirit in whatever way you desire. He is still our God. So this gospel needs to be seen in, in somewhat the same way, that the gospel is a gift to us, but it is not a gift that we can now do with whatever we want. It's my good news in that it describes the way that God has chosen to save me by grace, but it is not mine to change or to alter or to amend. So there are many things that I can do with this gospel that has been gifted to me. According to the scripture, I can preach the gospel. See that throughout the book of Acts. We see it in Romans. We see it from Paul to Timothy, that we can preach this gospel message to others. We can proclaim the gospel. That's not always preaching. Sometimes we sing songs about the gospel and we're proclaiming the truths that govern our lives. We can obey the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 1.8 warns us that if we're not obeying the gospel, then there are consequences to that. So the gospel is something that we can come alongside and follow after and and let it become alive in us. We can serve the gospel according to Romans 15.16. We can serve this gospel by being a part of God's church and by using the gifts that God has given to us to strengthen the testimony of the gospel in our communities and in the world. We can take courage in the gospel. We can stand firm in this gospel. We don't have to be ashamed of it because it is truth, right? So we can preach it without reservation knowing that God has revealed it and we don't have to apologize for it. So there's a lot of things that we can do with this gospel gift that has been given. But there are many things that we cannot do with this gospel. We cannot exploit this gospel for our personal uses. We cannot evolve the gospel and make it into something that God never intended it to be. We cannot adapt the gospel to a new cultural standard and norm. We can't say, well, people nowadays disagree with a lot of what God said back then, so we need to change the gospel so that people will receive it. Well, if they're not accepting what God has said, they've already said what they think about the gospel. Rejection, right? The gospel has got to stay the gospel. I cannot merchandise the gospel. I can't cheapen it in such a way that I'm just interested in making money off the gospel. That's not our desire. It is not our right Because the gospel, though it is a gift to us, still belongs to God and is still governed by Him. And by this gospel, He governs us. So friends, be very cautious of any doctrine that you hear about that seems to take the scripture in a creative new direction. Embellishing upon God's truth never results in enhancement 
The best we can hope to do is to discover aspects of God's truth that have been hidden to us by our immaturity or by our ignorance or by false teaching that we've somehow been under. Or we can hope to get a greater clarity of the things that he has revealed to us in his gospel. But no one's going to come along and say, listen, everybody, we've been wrong. Here's a new element to the gospel that we've been losing for all these years. Don't think so low of your God that he would allow something like that to happen. God cares for his bride. He provides for her needs. And so anybody who comes along and says the church has had it wrong for all these years and now we've somehow got a better, new understanding of the gospel, they are insulting the God who sustains the church and has sustained the church from the beginning. There has always been an aspect of the the, the body of Christ. The the true body of Christ has always had the true gospel. And though the, the world has has many different constructs, many different people who say, we're Christian, and they're not preaching the true gospel, though there will always be corruptions like that, God will never allow the true gospel to be totally veiled. It will always carry on in those who who call in the name of the Lord. So we must guard against the gospel's defilement. We've got to be zealous to keep it pure and to defend against any measures that the enemy might use to corrupt it. We cannot ignore the fact friends, that there is spiritual warfare going on in our lives every day. It's not something that we can see with clarity. It's not something that we completely understand. But no, make, make, no, make no mistake, there, there are several warnings in the Scripture that our enemy is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And how do you think he's going to try to do that? He's going to do it with his primary tool, deception. So guard your heart. When it comes to the gospel, do not let yourself be swept away by a man-made version of what God has given to us for eternity. Don't let yourselves fall into this pattern that so many have fallen into, that man's gospel relates more to the heart of man, and so I like it more. So I'm going to walk away from the true gospel and, and believe this gospel that lets me do what my heart wants to do. Don't be deceived by your heart, and don't be deceived by the enemy. There is one true gospel, and it comes from the Lord above. And you will not know that gospel unless you trust His Holy Scripture. Returning to our text in Galatians chapter 1, Paul goes on to say, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul didn't receive this gospel by the teaching and the persuasions of others. And there's a reason why he shares this information to us. I received it through the teaching of others. Nick Neves, I, I received it from the preaching of other ministers and, and through my family who lived the gospel out in front of me. Paul didn't receive it that same way. It was delivered to Paul by Jesus himself. Now some might, might scoff at this and say, well, what about 1 Corinthians 15, 3-5, where Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance to the Scripture." That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Doesn't it say there that Paul received it? Yeah, but who does it say he received it from? It doesn't say who he received it from in that passage. It says it in Acts chapter 9, which we've already read and studied, that he received it from this divine revelation of Jesus Christ, risen from the grave, in power, confronting Paul on the road to Damascus as he traveled on to persecute the church. And Jesus says, No! That's the design of your heart, but I'm about to radically change your heart, Paul. You're about to be mine. You're about to work for me. 
So Paul is making it clear to these Galatians that he's not just somebody who received the gospel from other people, that God has set him aside for a special work, that he is going to be doing something very, very important, and he's doing it even in this letter as he directs the Galatians away from this deception that they had fallen into. Paul did not grow in the understanding of it by way of man's teaching. We spoke about Paul's opponents in the last couple of weeks, and I've shown you that there were very clearly false prophets preaching a different gospel than Paul and trying to discredit Paul's grace alone gospel. It would have been easy for Paul, wouldn't it, to have just said, listen guys, I'm preaching the same same gospel as Peter. Don't you trust Peter? I'm preaching the same gospel as James, the half-brother of Jesus. Don't you trust the half-brother of James? He could have said that. But he doesn't. Why? Because he wants them to know that God has given him a mission. And that mission is critical. And they can't just brush him aside and replace the gospel that he gave the Galatians with a new gospel. Paul laid claim to a greater tutor. Like the prophets of old, he had received his calling and his gospel from the Lord God. And he's going to go into a much greater detail in this in verses 13 through 24, which Pastor Paul is going to preach for us next week. There is a sense in which, friends, you and I cannot receive the gospel the same way that Paul did. This was a special and divine revelation. If you have been waiting for God, maybe you've heard about the gospel and people have been trying to help you to see your need for salvation in Jesus Christ and you've been saying, "Eh, maybe, but if God's really real and if Jesus Christ did what he said he he said he was going to do I'm going to wait for God to reveal himself to me in a miraculous way if you've been waiting for that hand engraved invitation to become a Christian then you might be waiting a long time it's not that God cannot work a miracle today he can it's that in this era of the church God chooses not to do that why because we have the word of God which is no small thing friends This is the spoken word of the divine creator. And since we have these words, we have what we need to understand the gospel. You don't need Jesus to interrupt you on the road to your job and say, it's time to start following me. Rather, hear the words preached through his messengers, pastors and teachers and and, and, and deacons and trainers. Hear them preached. Listen to the content. Apply them to your life. Ask yourself, is this God real? And if he is, what am I doing running away from him? What am I doing trying to prove to him that I'm good enough when in reality I know in the heart of hearts inside of me that I'm not, that without his help I cannot be saved? So there is a sense, friends, that we cannot receive the gospel the same way that the Apostle Paul did. But there is another sense in which there is no other way to receive the gospel than the way that Paul did. Paul did not pursue this face-to-face meeting with Jesus. Paul didn't even, from what we know, pray and cry out to Jesus and say, prove yourself to me. He didn't ask for this meeting on the road to Damascus. He thought Jesus was a fraud. He had his course set. He had his plan hewed out. And if you know Paul and you've read his testimony of his life, He was hammering that plan out. One step at a time, he was fulfilling it. He was going to be the Pharisee of all Pharisees. But Jesus intervened in his life. You might not receive the shining glory of Jesus speaking audibly to you like Paul did. You likely won't. But if you're here today and you don't yet trust Jesus Christ, 
Could it be that God is in some way breaking into your reality? That He brought you to this place so that the powerful words of His Scripture could be opened to you and shown to you to be true and trustworthy. The Lord God, when He saves a person, takes the first step of love in their lives. He will soften the heart. He will change your perspective. Apart from Him reaching out to you, you will not desire the Scripture of God. You will not desire the salvation that could be had in Jesus Christ. So friend, is it possible that the Word of God is doing for you today what Jesus did in person for Paul so many years ago? One thing is for sure. If you're going to trust the gospel, you're going to need to see that it is not a man-made gospel. That it is not just another philosophy among many that fits your needs. You're going to need to understand that the gospel is the words of the one true God who has made us and demands holiness of us. And though none of us can live up to that holiness because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that holiness is available to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He gave His life on a cross, His perfect, pure, sinless life. He suffered and died so that the debt that we owe to God, who is perfect and pure, would be paid in full by His blood. I pray that today, if you have not yet given your life to Christ, that you would spend time meditating on these truths. If the Holy Spirit is moving you towards that decision and you think, I think I'm at the place where I really want to trust Jesus. I think I am being called to be a Christian. I think God is pulling me out of the life that I used to live. Then come and talk with me or talk with one of the elders here. Talk with the person who brought you and share this with somebody else so that we can help you take the next steps. We can help to answer some of the questions that maybe still linger in you. It is the biggest decision that anyone ever makes, whether they will follow Jesus Christ or whether they will reject Him. And we make that decision even before we say yes to Him. If we don't receive Jesus Christ, we are saying no to Him. There is no middle ground. So these are things we must meditate on. These are things that we must take seriously because these are the things that God requires of people. Let's take a second and pray and thank the Lord for uh, what He has taught us in Scripture. And then we have a little bit something else we're going to do today. We're going to be presenting to you some new members that we are blessed uh, to be able to share fellowship with and serve God alongside. And we're going to do that a little differently than what we've done in the past. Um, and we're going to explain that as we go. So let's bow our heads for just a moment and ask God to, uh, to use this teaching of the Word to impact our hearts.